Until now, most space station modules have been made of fairly familiar materials. Aluminum cans in space. There have been a few ideas to get beyond that, but one that I'm really excited about is inflatable habitats. And there's been a lot of research into this, including one module that has been flying with the International Space Station. But there's a new system that's under development by Sierra Space Systems, and this is called the Life Habitat the large integrated flexible environment. They're currently in the testing phase right now. They've tested smaller prototypes, testing how much pressure they can handle, and they're gonna be shifting to a full scale. And when this is complete, you'll have a space station with about a quarter the internal volume of the International Space Station, but launching on a single rocket. My guest today is Sean Buckley. He is the Senior Director of Engineering for Sierra Space, and he is leading the charge in developing this inflatable habitat. So we talk about the smaller prototype version of it, what the full scale version is going to look like. And then we talk about what role inflatable habitats can have across space exploration. And you won't be surprised to hear that Sean thinks it's everywhere. So it was a great conversation, a very practical and yet a fairly compelling idea of what the future of human space habitat will look like. All right, enjoy the interview. So how close to were you when some of these tests completed? Uh, you know, a couple hundred feet away in secured facilities. Uh, yeah. It's always exciting to hear the boom and feel the ground shake a little bit. And, but you don't um, know exactly when it's going to happen, right? Well, you know what? We have, we've got good data. We've been doing this long enough that we've yeah. got data. So we understand the pressures that we predict to. So there's a range that we look at. So we're, we're pretty we're pretty spot on when we can predict how long it's going to take and when it's going to burst. But there isn't this moment where you're just like, okay, right about now. Okay, now, now, and then it goes of off. And you're, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, you know, there's, a, there's a feeling of excitement in the room. You know, we're all engineers, right? And we're, we're building these articles and putting these articles together. And it takes something to burst. Um, everybody's really excited. So all the test engineers, myself, uh, the program managers, we're all sitting in the room and we're like, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Yeah. And you got to be careful because if you turn your head to the left, it goes boom, right? You turn your head to the right, it'll go boom. So you got to stay focused on that monitor. Right. It's if you even cause it to explode just by turning <laughs> right. away from it. Yeah. Right. I'll have some mystic influence. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So, so let's give some people some context then. Um, these explosions that we're talking about, these were planned. Uh, what is, what is, what are you doing with Sierra Space? So Sierra Space is designing what we call the life habitat. It's the large integrated flexible environment. And a life habitat is a soft good structure, which basically is packed at launch. So you fit it inside of a rocket fairing compressed, you launch it in space, lack of a better term, you press a button and basically it inflates, it becomes pressurized and gives you a volume. That pressurized volume is restrained by what we call the pressure shell or restraint layer. And we have to demonstrate that we've designed this pressure shell or restraint layer out of materials, textiles, that it can withstand the pressures and it can have a life in space, that it can actually survive the space environment. So the burst test, we call them ultimate burst tests, UBPs. A UBP means we bring it to ultimate failure. So the fun part about my job and the team that works at Sierra Space is we get to take these wonderful designs and we're doing our first test at subscale. We take them and we bring them to maximum UBP. I want to get a number. The team needs a number to look at. So we take that maximum pressure, we inflate it until it's actually going to pop when it goes, when it explodes and goes boom, right? 
that's the exciting part. We take that data, whatever that number is, and we put it on a chart. And then we take that chart and we do what's called an estimation of UTS, ultimate tensile strength at the component level. And then we take it also at the system level, which is the UBP. And that tells the engineers how strong our materials are and how strong our integration is and how strong our assembly is. You want to do it over time, right? You want to do it multiple times. So that's why you saw we did the first burst test. Great data point. Can you repeat it? Heck yeah, we can repeat it. We do the second burst test and then we make sure it's within family. And we were within family of those two numbers. So great results on the two burst tests. And then, of course, we did a creep test. And the creep test demonstrated that our system systematically can last a duration of time in space. And that's one of the most important values for us. So why are inflatable habitats such a good solution for creating some kind of place in space? Oh, you know, launching uh, spacecraft in space is expensive, right? It's expensive to launch a rocket. Um, and you're always fighting mass. When you have an object, it has a certain amount of mass to it, and it costs a certain amount of money, dollars, per kilogram to launch into space. So let's imagine this. You take and launch something which is packed, very tight, right? When you launch it, it launches into space, and then you inflate it. When you inflate it, you gain four, five, six times the volume. So if you look at your launch-to-cost ratio, you just brought your dollars down. If you launch a typical aluminum structure, which can expand, whatever you launch on the ground is what you get in space, but not with Sierra Space. Whatever you launch from the ground, when it goes up into space, you gain a magnitude of volume. And volume is king. Ask anybody who's worked on the International mm -hmm. Space Station. You say, would you like less volume or more volume? They're going to go, we want more. We're that solution. We provide you more volume. And the, the, the versions that you've been testing, these are prototypes. So how do they compare to what will be the final version of the life module that you're planning to launch into space? So um, terminology, there are prototypes slash engineering units. Mm -hmm. So we design them with the same materials, with the same type of stitching, the same type of manufacturing that we're going to use on our full scales. We go to subscale because we can move faster. We can move faster and we can verify the architecture. If you saw in some of our releases, we call these one-third scale. We're specific in that. There are subscale, one-third scale. We identify one-third scale because we relate that to a full-scale habitat. It's one-third the size. So what we attempt to do is make sure that that data that we do can be correlated. When you correlate that data to a full-scale, I can show relatability, their team can show relatability to how we're designing sub to full-scale and then beyond all the it's designs that come after life. And so a third, this the, this version is a third of the scale of the final habitat. So give us a sense of how big and spacious the final habitat is expected to be. Oh, you're looking at 283 cubic meters, about the size of a three-story, about three-story apartment, right? Or a three-story house. Um, it has enough space to house living quarters, exercise quarters. When you compare it to the International Space Station, it's one third the size. In a single launch, hmm. we will put one third the size of the International Space Station into space. On what, I mean, on what launch platform? Like how big of a fairing? Well, we look at five meter fairings. Right. Right, so we're looking at five meter fairings. Um, we wanna get in space, we wanna keep it to a five meter fairing. Well, why? Because those are rockets which are currently available and currently being developed. We've got future concepts that keep getting larger and larger, larger lives, larger usability, because we, we are designing a product line. And that product line is evolutionary. So you see the one third scale, 
You see the life habitat, and then there'll be future versions of life, which get even larger. Now, you have been testing the original versions to specifications set by NASA. What will, how will your work interact with NASA in the future? Well, we've got, uh, we currently have contracts that we're working on with NASA. So we have agreements with them through our next step program, which is done through the NASA um, certification process. So um, NASA is an important critical part of what we're doing, um, but we're independently certified. So Sierra Space is certifying their soft goods architecture and their approach. NASA has a set of guidelines and we're adhering to those guidelines where applicable and how we take that approach. Um, NASA is one of our partners in this. This is why you see us testing at Marshall Space Flight Center. Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama has a long history of testing um, next generation technologies. We wanna leverage that capability in Alabama. Um, so having NASA on board with us, looking at the data, our analysis team will analyze the data. NASA's analysis team analyzes the data. And then we talk and we discuss what that analysis means. And then we discuss our path moving forward. So let's talk about some of the risks. So when people think about an inflatable habitat, I think they're imagining a balloon in space <laughs> right. and, and one micrometeorite impact and the thing pops. So, so what is the risk profile of an inflatable habitat? Well, I'm going to give you a few... Um, few technical data terms, right? So first one is our pressure shell. So we've talked about the pressure shell that we're bursting right now. The material we use is stronger than steel. So that's our, that's kind of a, um, that's how we're able to inflate it. When you talk about protecting from micrometeor orbital debris, right? An orbital debris shield, we use what's commonly known as a Whipple shield. A Whipple shield is applied on the outside of aluminum structures, and it's a layering of materials with space in between those materials. We do the same thing for our materials. So we take and design an MMOD on the outside of the spacecraft, which will be built towards the models for placement or orientation or inclination where we place the spacecraft. We'd stack that MMOD together. And when we stack the MMOD together, we go through an extensive design and analysis process. We will design the MOD for mass, weight, and performance value. We consider radiation effects. We consider thermal effects. And then we take that entire stack and we do what's called HVI testing, hypervelocity impact testing, another test that the team loves to do. So we take it out to different centers. We get a stack of the materials. And basically, we shoot a projectile at it from all different angles. And it either rips it apart or it rips it apart in certain areas. So we look at the amount of penetration of that object. Does it go through 25% of it, 50% of it, 75% of it? And then we fine tune. And when we fine tune that, we fine tune it for mission duration. So let's say we have a mission duration of 15 years. We have to demonstrate that our MMOD, that protection will last 15 years and beyond. And this and is so, what we're currently working on. And so you're looking at like, what is the size of the largest piece of debris that you're likely to encounter within that 15 years? What's the speed? Yeah. Right. Speed and size and projection angle, you know, because our surfaces are curved. We look at how the projected angles will hit at multiple curves places. We look at mission parameters, DRM, design reference missions. Where are the habitats going to be placed in space? What is the amount of debris field? What is the projected amount of debris field? And all of this data we work with NASA on. So we get what's called orbital models, orbital debris models. We do PMPs, probability of no penetration. Uh, we'll do micrometeor orbital debris assessments. We select out different materials for its performance values, for its packability, for its sustainment over time. All of that is considered very complex, 
but it's part of our process to design a habitat in space. And even if there is a puncture, I mean, the difference in pressure between inside and outside is not as dramatic as I think people imagine. Like, again, movies have, science fiction has <laughs> filled our head with nonsense, and we imagine people getting sucked out into space, but it's not that dramatic. It's not that dramatic, and it wouldn't happen like that. We have sensors which are on the spacecraft, which will identify on the habitat, which will identify a puncture or a penetration. We have repair. Um, we have repair processes, right? There's procedures for everything. So if there is a puncture or there is something that penetrates through the layers, uh, we have areas which are called safe haven, right? So if something does happen dramatic, you go into an area of the habitat or an area of our service module, which is connected to it as a safe haven. So we can determine what type of repairs have to happen. Um, all of this is is pre-configured as part of our mission procedures. Now, you mentioned thermal and radiation and this external layer. So what about radiation? I mean, obviously, when you're close to the Earth, you're protected by the magnetosphere. Um, but how does your style of habitat compare to kind of existing aluminum shells for protecting the astronauts from radiation? Well, protecting from radiation is based on layer to thicknesses, right? Layer to make thicknesses in a type of materials. We're selecting earth-based materials. When I say earth-based materials, they have a high performance value in, in to mitigate radiation effects. Uh, we all know hydrogen is probably the best, right? You take hydrogen up there, what type of hydrogen-based materials can you place on your larynx? And also it's the layering where it's placed within inside the stack on how you're gonna protect the individuals. Um, we are currently working through selecting different types of materials, different radiation studies. LEO is the best environment for us to go into, but we're looking at deep space. You know, we're looking at cislunar, we're looking at lunar applications. So we're studying materials in all those different environments, different types of radiations, as you pointed out, and what those effects are, short duration and long duration. Radiation effects is how long is your mission going to be? Are people going to be up there for six months, three months, 12 months, a year continuous? We look at those dosage effects um, and see what that effect will have on the participant with inside that mission. I mean, at the end of the day, it's how many protons can you get in between you and space? Exactly. Right. And I guess the smaller the habitat, the, the thicker the walls you can make to the size of the volume, but if you want to have a lot of volume, then you're getting, then the compromises start to start to add up. Is there a- You do mass trades, right? Yeah, you do yeah. Trade. But we, we don't sacrifice the mass for safety. So we, our first line of defense is that highly integrated soft goods layers when everything goes together to get the maximum performance. And then what we do is all those non-required systems, we decrease that in order to reach our mass allocations. So safety upmost first. This is why we have a highly resilient air barrier, highly resilient restraint layer, highly resilient MMOD and MLI. That's that outer shell that we design. Um, after that, we start mitigating other areas so we can maintain that performance value. Safety um, and performance values are highly critical to us. Now, we recently built a house and getting the actual walls up, roof up, didn't take that long. It was everything else, you know, yeah. all of the electrical work, the plumbing work, the floors, the painting, et cetera, that actually ended up taking the vast majority of the of the time and expense. Um, so, I mean, I'm imagining you're inflating this shell, but obviously you're going to want space inside. So how does the how does allocating internal space inside the habitat work? Well, if you take a look at what we have on our website, you'll notice that the life habitat has a center core. And in the center core, 
we house our systems, all of our primary systems, so your equal systems, your communication systems, your guidance systems, everything that basically allows the life to operate is with inside that core. When we expand, we pressurize now, we get bigger. Um, we have items that are stored with inside that core. So when you do first ingress, they come in and the first ingress is you start setting up those outer areas. You know, life has the possibility, the life habitat of being continuously outfitted through a modular system. We use the word in our engineering meetings and our program meetings of commonality. What is, what is the most common components that we can use? And commonality is for design, it's for integration, it's for manufacturing, it's for assembly, and it's also for outfitting. What is that common screw or bolt? What is that common attachment? Make everything simply. What is reuse? What can you reuse from the core once it's inflated and now put it out in that outer volume? Um, we have a team of industrial engineers, highly creative individuals and outside consultants, which are currently working with us on those life layouts. What we would do in those first initial layouts and how it's all used for astronaut training. You know, we've got astronauts on board at, at um, Sierra Space and those astronauts are giving us feedback, you know, reach assessments. Um, how do you translate across those areas? So um, like you said, Building the structures, we're going to make an incredible progress. But in the back store, right, back scenes that you're not seeing, we have complete utilization teams, propulsion teams, equals teams, power teams, avionics teams, guided navigation teams, tackling all those problems and all those issues. And so you really have two places that you can put this stuff. You can put it in the central core, or I guess you can feed some of it into the outer shell. And then as you inflate it, it is sort of not damaged, but it's the in, but I mean, you can still have internal baffles to separate off rooms, can't you? 100%. Yeah, we yeah. do that. Yeah. So the, the goal and the design for the life habitat is to create those areas with inside the habitat. Um, when you talk about baffles or separating, they can be soft baffles, right? You imagine some type of soft textures that would separate out the different areas, but you have to make sure you have proper airflow. CFD, you don't want to create dead spots in space, right? Airflow with oxygen moving all around, usable atmosphere, you have carbon monoxide that you have to mitigate. There's thermal, right? You got to deal with heat dissipation. So we have what we call different design parameters for each one of our configuration layouts. And then we do all of those studies to support those layouts. And then that gives us the most applicable configuration for that design reference mission for that DRM. So talk me through deployment. So let's imagine that you've got this on Falcon 9 and it's launched up to the International Space Station or some existing space hotel and you and it's coiled up. So what happens to, through as they actually deploy this to a station? So let's say we've launched, right? Um, we've launched the space. Uh, fairing is popped. Shells are coming out, right? And now you just have the life habitat. It's all packed up, wrapped up nice and tight we go through what's called a deployment sequence. So basically we, we give a command to our habitat and it says, release the soft guns. And it does a certain type of deployment and it releases the constraining or packing straps. Soft goods then relaxes. Basically just relaxes for a duration of time because you've had it compressed now for so long. You want all the materials just to take a little bit of a relax, take a deep breath, right? Let them relax. Once they relax, we have what's called a PCS system. A pressure control system, just like a standard habitat would have, except our pressure control system has what's called an inflation scenario. We're going to inflate the habitat now. Well, when we do this in space, we've already done this dozens of times on terrestrial on Earth. 
So we have exact inflation numbers. We know how many seconds or how many minutes it's going to take to pressurize that to what we call first shape. Pressurize the first shape is a quarter to a half PSI. Pressurizes, gets to that shape. Then you fill it full of atmosphere to get you to your 14.7, which is going to be your operating atmosphere in LEO. That duration of time is really driven by mission parameters. You want to pre-inflate before it docks to anything else, have it inflated. You also want to get it inflated as soon as possible when you get in space, once you're in that micro-meteor orbital debris field. Because remember, you've packed it and you've compressed it down. And our soft goods, the performance value is inflated when you get those systems to expand out. So we have, again, DRM, Divine Reference Missions, re-indicate this is our mission parameters. This is the time from launch to inflation. And then we have that completely scripted out in a procedure. And so you'll inflate before you reach the destination. Well, that's one scenario. Right. That's probably 90% of what we're doing. There's always a scenario where we could attach to something and inflate. But right now, our mission is get it up into space, inflate the module, let it expand, let all the soft goods relax, have it inflated, and do what we call shakeout. Take a look at its holding pressure and make sure it can maintain atmosphere, look at the thermo inside of it. Right, right, right. And so then, and then what about sort of all of that fine tuning, all of the window installation and, and flooring and such? So what, what happens then? I mean, I'm assuming the astronauts will then finish off the- We'll take a dream chaser. Yep. Dream chaser, we'll dock to it, a crude gene chaser. We'll dock to our life habitat. At that point, everything will be inflated. You'll have all the volume. Systems will be operating. It'll be generating an atmosphere on the inside of it. Windows will be in operation because there's no setup for the windows. First ingresses, they go through and they start setting up crew quarters. They start setting up the first initial workstations. They make sure all the lighting is going. They do a complete shakeout of all the systems going up and down the trust. And then they start deploying out those separating areas, depending upon their duration of time on station and what their mission is during that time when they're on there. And do you see these being fully self-sufficient or ideally docked to some other space station? Self-sufficient, self-sufficient. Hmm. We're designing it so they can be an independent space station and docked to additional space stations. But everything, power, power thermal, radi- yeah, thermal every- radiation, everything. Everything, solar rays, power, huh. thermal radiation, propulsion systems, ECLA systems, um, the whole nine yards. So it's, I mean, in a single launch, you get a space station with a third the volume of the International Space Station done. Yeah, you just sold me. I want one. You want one? Want one? <laughs> there's, there's this company called Tier Space that's selling them. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. When you think about it in a single launch. And and what about repurposing? I mean, I'm imagining, you know, you have the astronauts up there, they're performing some mission that requires a certain configuration of the station. And then maybe another mission comes up later to reconfigure. Modularity. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is what, this is what's the great point about having all that volume when you expand, it's completely modular on the inside. So obviously it takes time to do that modularity. But again, we go back to that word that was using commonality. We design terrestrially commonality and then we deploy it terrestrially. We look at those different configurations and then we launch it in space and we have a configuration notebook. If you wanna have 600 cubic meters to work on science experiments, do the following to configure it. If you need a medical bay, right? If you need emergency stations, if you need science, you know, biopharma, any one of those applications, we have the ability to configure for that. And what about the, I guess, the atmospheric drag compared to 
some other equivalent mass stations at the same altitude? Well, we have the same, we deal with the same thing that any other station's gonna deal with, right? So orbital decay. So we have maintaining propulsion, maintaining thrusters, which will maintain us in orbit. Uh, if you take a look at our, our design, you're gonna look at the forward and aft toroidal sections, nice and smooth and curved, right? It's a nice curved area on it. That's due to the type of soft goods we're designing for all of our applications. It's great, it's easier to pack, it's easier to put together, it works great as a pressure shell, it also works great in space. So there's a lot of positive values to what we're designing in this soft goods configuration. I mean, does does a spherical shape give you a more predictable atmospheric drag than, than something as complicated as, say, the International Space Station? Well, again, everything you're going to look at in the International Space Station, if you have your solar rays that are up, you have your radiators that are up, you have all your different parameters on it, you're going to have the same net effect on ours. We're going to put up solar rays, right? right. We're going to put up radiators. We're going to have the same net effect. We just have to deal with it in the same way that the station is dealing with it. So we might have a single habitable unit, or we might have three of them up there to give us what the space station can get. If we put three up there, we'll have multiple solar array deployed. So again, you're going to have the same type of drag and same type of drag effect that you would have the International Space Station. And we have propulsion and guidance navigation teams that are working on that right now. In fact, today I was looking at a at a profile where we're going to inclination orbital, inclination orbital debris, orbital decay, all of that just 20, 30 minutes ago. What what is the timeline then? So why don't you talk through if everything goes well um, from these three tests that you've performed so far? What does the future look like? Well, we're moving through soft goods certification. That's part of our plan right now. We've got a timeline over the next couple of years to get certified. We're moving really aggressively. Um, and then our systems, while we're doing soft goods, we're also maturing our hard structures, our ECLA systems, our propulsion systems. Uh, we're purchasing hardware. Uh, we're going through design reviews. Uh, we are working with the orbital reef team, Blue Origin, to get the orbital reef up. You know, 2028 is is a target goal for us to get orbital reef up, placed into into space, and for us to be adding our modules on there. Um, so exciting times! I mean, we're moving fast, moving quick. It's a short four years from now. You know, four or five years for us to get done. Um, really exciting times. So you're hoping four or five years from now you will have the full version in space as part of the orbital reef or sooner or sooner. Is, sure. Or yeah. sooner. My yeah. goal is to get it. Our goal. I would always say my goal. Our goal is to get it done as soon as possible, but to do it in a safe manner. Yeah. So obviously we're dotting all of our eyes. We're crossing all of our T's and, um, but we're moving pretty aggressively. You can see by our soft good schedule, you can see how quickly we're, we're doing these tests back to back to back to back. Um, and what is that next major focus. test that people should, should focus on? Oh, we're going to, we're going to full scale. We're going to do a full scale burst. Um, you know, hopefully sometime, I won't say hopefully sometime in 2023, uh, we'll have additional right. subscale tests. Also, we have, um, additional testing. At and you'll, so. and you'll share the video cause they've been so much fun to see those videos. 100% absolutely yeah. love the videos. Um, and the team has a great time. Uh, it's a great time doing. You saw, um, Beth Shapey, who was one of our soft goods engineers, um, in one of the videos you saw Gerard Vallee, uh, Gerard Vallee uh, came over to us from NASA. He was part of the um, NASA team that certified the Bigelow expandable activity module on the International Space Station soft goods habitat. So it's just great having those individuals on the team and that expertise. Yeah. More cameras, super slow mo, you yes. know, bringing a cinematographer because they're pretty cool. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I want to shift gears now and you can take off the practical hat and you can put on the science fiction hat. And the next part of this conversation, I just want to let anybody who is perhaps uh, watching who's concerned, this is purely speculative. We're just talking about science fiction here. Um, 
so you must have done the math. How, if you've stuck one of these in a starship, you've got whatever it is, a nine meter fairing. What kind of a yeah. volume do you think you could deploy in a much larger launch vehicle? Over 2,000 cubic meters. And so, sorry, how big was the International Space Station? <laughs> International Space Station, uh, about 900 about 900 cubic meters. Right. So you yeah. could, again, in one Starship launch, put up one a Starship space station launch. that is more than twice the internal volume. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And like, how and big of a radius, how will, big of a radius this, is that? No, no. This is not fictional. No, I understand. It's not fictional. We're currently working on this. I mean, this is this yeah. is one of our, our paths to evolution. So what's um, the radius? what's the length right well, so first of all yeah. how long is it right yeah and how long does something have to be where you can get 2,000 cubic meters does it have to be you know 60 feet long right 30 35 40 50 feet in diameter if you take a nine meter fairing right now we're on a five meter you take a nine meter that gives us a nine meter truss you know that internal core that means all those additional systems that we can store in there i mean a nine meter truss is 27 foot in diameter truss that's massive you know, you take and wrap soft goods around there, what we can generate out. I mean, you're looking at something that's, you know, probably six in magnitude of 60, 70 feet long, 40 to 50 feet in diameter. It's just a massive spaceship, right. massive space habitat. And I'm kind of imagining like if people like for space tourism, they want to go into zero G, they're flying, oh. right? Oh, you're, yeah, you're there. I mean, it is, yeah. it, to have 2,000 cubic meters would be, would be such a phenomenal feat to have it in space in a single launch. Uh, what you could do with inside that 2,000 meters is really um, unlimited. And so what about uh, locations on the surface of other worlds, like down on the surface of the moon, surface of Mars? How does trying to exist in gravity and having a solid earth underneath you? How does that change your, your thinking? So soft goods is interesting. So once you pressurize soft goods, it becomes a hard shell. I've literally taken sledgehammers and, and sledgehammered against the, uh, the inflatable pressure shell, which is the restraint layer and the, the sledgehammer just bounces off. So you deal with a couple different things. Let's talk about lunar. So in, in Leo, it's inflated. It's hard shell. It's got soft goods. When you land it on the surface of the moon, you're going to have some gravity. As long as you maintain pressurization and you provide it the ability to sustain its location, soft goods is the absolute perfect way to maintain that first landing on that surface and give you a place to live. I always look at lunar application as like wagons on the moon. You know, we you talk about wagons going across the frontier, right? You didn't bring your house with you. What you brought with you was a wagon. You didn't bring your cabin. You found your location. You built your cabin in space, right? Or on the West, but you had that wagon trail. When you go to the lunar surface, you need to have the ability to have your tent, which is your small living surface, and then the ability to deploy your actual permanent living surface. What better than to mix soft goods with 3D printing technology and deploy those types of surface habitation on the surface of the moon? It's a great system to use. And I, the same thing for lunar or same thing for Mars. And when you're talking about deep space, you need large volumes in deep space to have your crew supplies, right? You need a mission for a year. How do you put all of your supplies in your habitat for that duration of time? Well, that's soft goods. You want to get up in space. You want to deploy out your soft goods close to home. You want to supply mission it and then take off and go around, go around to Mars, right? And do that Mars loop as you're going to go around. Soft goods is perfectly applicable for that. And so 
I mean, you're just talking about bolting on some kind of engine to the space station and then yep. using that as your ferry to go to another world. Something that can propel you, propel you, right? So nuclear yeah. propulsion, we all talk about, we all hear about nuclear propulsion, Draco and everything that's being developed on that side. The combination of having that large inflatable habitat and then having some type of propulsion system just works the two together. And that just brings you to that deep space exploration, right? Which all of us who are involved in this are super excited about that. You know, I think about it a lot of time. We, again, I always use the word DRMs, design reference missions. We talk about deep space and how far can we go? And it's, it's the amount of living volume. It's the amount of space you're going to have inside there. You don't want to be stuck in a small tin can. You want to be able to stretch out and be in there for a year. This is what we're designing at Sierra Space. It's that next generation of habitats. Leo is just the beginning. Right. So what about modularity? Like, like say you wanted to, be, you know, begin that first, that first base on the moon and then expand to larger and larger volumes or connect many of them together. How would you see that playing out? Well, definitely. I mean, landing on the lunar surface is no easy task, right? You got landers. Landers are going to have us, again, the way we bait back to mass. So there's a certain amount of mass you can bring down to the surface. Again, I see soft goods as a great applicable because it's your land to mass. And you have your launch to mass, then land to mass ratio. So if we can land something which is three to 4,000 kilograms on the lunar surface and then expand it to give you 50, 60, 80 cubic meters of volume in one shot, that is, a, that is an amazing task. So I see these, you can put them together like a string of pearls, right? You can connect multiple life habitats, multiple subscale life habitats, multiple full-scale life habitats. You can connect them together and give you that, um, that connection or that pathway to create multiple living areas, which are interconnected to each other to give you a platform on the lunar surface to live within. Um, have, you, have you thought at all about artificial gravity I mean, how are these rotated? And, and I guess, would you change the shape into more of a torus? What's the, what, have you thought about this? Well, you brought up earlier about attaching multiple ones together. So what would stop us from attaching multiple life habitats together in a ring, right? And then having that ring rotate. Uh, we talk about artificial gravity all the time. They, we'll go, we'll geek out, right? We'll go in a geek out room and just talk about what could we do? What's the next generation? Right, create, right, right. Yeah. I mean, can we do the, can we do the Star Trek where the door goes, you know, can we, can we make really cool things? How close can we get to making, you know, I always go, I'll go back to Star Trek. How close can we get to making Star Trek the reality, right? Um, we are there in putting habitats in space. We're going to be living in space and we're going to have multiple habitats and multiple destinations. Sierra Space is going to do it. Our website says build a platform in space to benefit life on earth, right? We are called destinations with an S because there are multiple destinations, Um what can we do to create that next generation of space habitation? And that's exactly what you talked about. It's creating artificial gravity, right? It's being able to live and eat in space, more you know, hydroponics, more growing of food in space. The more we get in space, the more we go through our trials in space, the better adapt we're gonna be to live in space. And this is one of the, this is one of the ways that human mankind can get into space is via Sierra space. We have the dream chaser transport. We have the life habitat and we have an entire applications division, which is developing the systems that allow you to live in space. We have all three and that's, that's a rarity in our industry. I don't know if anybody else that has all three, 
Um, that's why we're a leader in space right now. Now, there is a billionaire who is thinking of sending a large number of humans to Mars. Um, what do you think are the unknowns about living and working in space for long periods of time or on other worlds that should be investigated more so that we can get a much better sense of what it's going to take to be able to live in space? No, I think, I think NASA's done a great job in extending the durations of astronauts on the International Space Station. One of the biggest things that I get from talking to astronauts is the duration of time in space mentally and how do you deal with those long durations. The unknowns is the net effect of being away from your home so far. Go back to the early explorers. When they left Europe and they said, listen, we're going to go to the edge of the world. We might fall off, but we're just going to keep going. It's the drive to explore the, explore the unknown. They didn't know what happened. When they went out there, what happened? Some of them got scurvy, right? You ran out of food. There was mutiny. There was all kinds of things. So we have a lot of human experience on what happened. Those lessons learned, we can apply to us going in deep space. This is why we talk about the amount of volume you'll need to make sure you have all of your supplies. Get all that supplies on board. Um, make sure there's windows, right? Windows so you can see as you're going by planets or you see other areas. It's that understanding of reality of what you're, where you're at and you're not just stuck in an enclosed space. Um, the, like I said, the amount of food, volume, mental, um, the capacity for the brain to be able to handle that deep space and that long time out there. What are the radiation effects? You know, what will happen on your body once you get farther and farther out into our atmosphere? Luckily enough, we're sending landers onto the moon, right? We've got sensors going out there and we're getting back that data. And that data is being shared by NASA. That data helps us to understand what is it like to do a deep space mission and what do we need to be successful? And we're currently working on that. So do you, you think it's more mental than engineering in for the unknowns? Like it's not toilets, it's psychologists? It's psychology, yeah. I mean, I... I think it's a it's a it's a mirroring of both. Uh, engineering is moving so fast, especially over the past couple of decades. You know, we're solving more and more of what we would deem as problems before. Now they're they're blips in a chart, right? They're blips on a chart that we're solving and we're checking the boxes. Still a lot of work to do on the technology side, but it's the human side to figure out how the humans are going to be able to live and work in space over a duration of time. Again, I always go back to we're lucky enough that we have astronauts which have been living on the International Space Station for decades. And Sierra Space has them on board, several of them. Um, and we're talking with them and saying, what is, how should we design the interior of these habitats so that you would want to be up there for a duration of time? And we get that direct feedback, handhold size, right? The buttons. You'd be amazed at the conversations we have on buttons, just on how to turn things off and turn things on. Um, talk about how your foot drags across something and it might turn on nine buttons so you need to have protectors on there so you don't ever drag your foot across. All those things our designers and our engineers are learning on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we have virtual reality. So leveraging virtual reality right now for Sierra Space has been huge. So we take and put an engineer or a customer accommodation individual with inside virtual reality and they walk through a life habitat and they take a look at the inside of it and we get direct feedback. We take that feedback and then we go and look at our designs. How do we reconfigure our designs? What is working? What's not working? So we can optimize the entire experience being in space. So what's what's your vision of humanity in space? Oh wow, uh, vision! I see, I see humanity living off-world. 
I see it is, it is an absolute necessity for us to explore. Why did we leave Europe, right? Why do you leave the Americas? Why do you go explore? Because there's that great vast unknown. It's that want and need. I see thousands and thousands of people living in space, learning in space. I see a change in biopharma, which is just going to go through the roof developing medicines, new heart procedures, new ways of improving life terrestrially, but doing it in space. You know, the breakdown of um, biopharma in terrestrially, you're fighting gravity all the time, but you don't have gravity in space. Can you develop that next generation medicine, the next generation cell development? And how far can we take that? Hmm. Um, I see I see that, like I said, thousands of people living off space. I mean, I'm hoping I'm one of them one day. You know, really? I want to be up in a life. Oh, I want to be up in a life habitat. Um, I want to be up there and I want to live. I want to see it. I want to work in it. Um, I always say the proof's in the pudding, right? So if I'm willing to design it and work on it, I should be willing to go up in space in it. And wholeheartedly, um, I will go up there in a heartbeat and live up there. Yeah. Super exciting. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll wait. I'll go after you. Oh, yeah. no, you come along. No, I come with us. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. And I also hear it's going to create incredible hair growth. So I oh, just want to get up there really fast. That alone, all that radiation. Yeah. All yeah, that radiation. Yeah. We have all this air coming out. All right. So, John, if people want to keep track of what you're working on and watch for that next explosive test, what's the best place to do that? Uh, you want to you go to sierraspace.com. Uh, you want to watch and see what our new releases and feeds are. Uh, we're also really big on social media right now. So we're, we're pretty open. We're, we're a disclosing company, right? We want to create excitement over what we're doing. So that excitement is putting those burst tests out there, right? Showing the company, um, showing everybody, put the creep test out there. We have um, additional systems which are going through testing. Once we're done with that testing and that data, we're going to expose that uh, to the world and let them know what we're developing. We've got Dream Chaser, right? Dream Chaser has missions that are coming up. Um, and that's going to be amazing. Our cargo missions, which are coming up, which are going to basically revolutionize the way you bring cargo up and you bring cargo back down from the International Space Station. Um, there are so many things happening. Just stay tuned. Look at LinkedIn. Look at Instagram. Right. Look at all the different social media platforms. You'll hear it from us. Our comms team is amazing. All right. And uh, hopefully the next call, you'll be in space. <laughs> that would be. I would love to call you right. from space. All right. Thanks, Sean. Good luck. All right. Thank you. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonan, Maud Sue, George, Jeremy Matter, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verabeoff, Josh Schultz, and M. Drew Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.